Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, and we return, as is our habit every single week, to the study of God's Word this morning. For those of you who are newer with us, we are committed to sequentially working our way through this gospel, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've been doing that for um, about two and a half years at this point. And so we find ourselves this morning in chapter 7 and verses 24 through 30. And so just by way of introduction, let me read for you these verses, which will capture the majority of our thoughts this morning. Again, that's Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Here's what this man records under the inspiration of the Spirit. And when the messengers of John had left, he, Jesus, began to speak to the crowds about John, saying, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal places. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. For this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves not having been baptized by John. Well, it was uh, a number of years ago uh, that I was approached um, and had the opportunity to become one of the official um, book reviewers for something known as the Gospel Coalition, if, if you know what that is. Um, when I, of course, used to like the Gospel Coalition and recommend it, I don't do that too much these days. But from time to time, I would receive um, pre-release books from publishers um, that were about to hit the market, and I'd have the opportunity to review them for TGC, and so they would uh, publish them through their various platforms. And so it was always uh, an enjoyable thing for me, mostly because I had free books being shipped to my house, Um, but it was also enjoyable just to interact with the many who would read my reviews. And so one of the books that I don't think gained too much popularity, but I thought was rather insightful, was a book that was entitled Glory Hunger, uh, written by a man named J.R. Vassar, who is a pastor down in Texas. And what he sought to show from a biblical perspective is that all humans have a God-given desire for glory. That is to say that they desire to receive honor and greatness. This is something that is certainly proven true throughout the history of the world. Glory was always the goal, for example, for many in the Roman world, whether 
Uh, They were the gladiators of old or the cultural religious understanding of what drove their pantheon of the gods. In fact, that entire system was driven by the pursuit of glory. There are many nations that have risen and fallen due to the pursuit of glory. There are many leaders that have risen and fallen throughout the history of the world due to the pursuit of glory. And so glory has been the chief drive for much that has happened in this world. There are many profound things that have resulted from the pursuit of greatness, but there are also many devastating things that have resulted from the pursuit of greatness. In fact, it is what has built some of the most powerful nations and driven many to seek discovery and innovation and craftsmanship. But the pursuit of glory is also what has started many wars and created things such as weapons of mass destruction. And so what Vassar tried to show in his book, which I thought he made the case, is that this desire, this hunger for glory that exists within the human soul, whether that be embodied in the conscience of a nation or in an individual, that is actually a God-given desire. And because, as he argued, the pursuit of glory is bound up with what it means to be created in the image of God. We know that God does all things for the sake of his own glory. And so his point was that we ought not to be shocked then when people who have been created in that image seek glory. Sometimes Christians, in an attempt to guard against pride, will sometimes view this as somehow being sinful. But this is actually a very biblical concept. In fact, he used our passage here this morning as one of his main texts to argue his point, but the short of his message was that man, and hear this, man, he says, rightly desires greatness. That is a pursuit consistent with what it means to be created in God's image. Now, like all things, of course, sin has marred that pursuit. Like many things, God has given us good gifts. He's given us good desires, but we twist that in our sinfulness. But the Bible is very clear that you have been created for glory. You have been created to be made great. You were created in the image of God, and so there is something within you that desires to be exalted. And so as a result, the scriptures are clear that for those who are in Christ Jesus, that a day is coming in which you will be exalted. That is the language of the scriptures. In fact, you will reign, as Paul says, as a co-heir with Christ, Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. That is part of the Christian hope. And that is not to say that you will in some way be God, as, for example, the Mormons teach. Rather, God alone will receive that supreme glory, but make no mistake, you will be exalted to a very high place in the new creation. In fact, if you didn't know, you will even do such things as judge angels, according to the book of Colossians. Angels are not creatures that have been created in God's image, but you have. And so Paul says that, well, you've been made a little lower than the angels for now, that a day is coming in which you will be exalted above the angels. In fact, you will judge these angels. And so in glory, you will be exalted in the kingdom. You will be given access, you will be given power, you will be granted authority. And so make no mistake, you were created for greatness. 
You will be given that which man so desperately desires now, but you will receive it and exercise it in a perfectly sinless way. And so the question before us this morning that is presented by this text is, so how does that happen? How do you achieve such greatness? In fact, I've titled my sermon this morning, How to Be Great, and I assume that you know this, but just to cover my basis, this has nothing to do with temporary greatness. It has nothing to do with how to succeed, how to achieve wealth, how to achieve power and status. I'm sure there's a church this morning that is teaching that, but this is how to be great in the kingdom. This is how to be great in eternity, which, of course, is a much longer and much more significant existence than your short stint here on earth. And so we come this morning to the second of three consecutive passages regarding Jesus and John the Baptist. If you're newer with us this morning, you're just sort of dropping into this, so I apologize. But last time we dealt with John's doubting of Jesus as the Messiah, And so this morning, we're going to see Jesus now use John's doubt to communicate something very significant about himself. And because, as I mentioned last time, the clear message of this section is to reveal that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is that prophesied Messiah. And so the point of Luke is to declare that Jesus is Lord That is the unambiguous message of this section. And so this morning, we're going to see him press that point a little bit further. And so what he does now is show that there are only two types of people in this world. There are those who will be great, and there are those who will not. There are those who will accept Jesus as the Christ, and there are those who will reject Jesus as the Christ. And so what Jesus does is he now uses John and what he knows that these people people know about John to sort of trap him. In fact, Jesus, in the masterful way that only he can do, he backs these people into a corner, but for the purpose now of inducing a confession. And so for those of you who like structure, we are going to see three points this morning. Again, Jesus is going to use John here to sort of build a case. But first of all, we're going to see John's character, verses 24 through 26, We will see, second of all, John's calling, verses 27 through 28, and then we will finish out with John's cause, 29 through 30, John's character, John's calling, and John's cause. So first of all, notice, please, John's character, this is 24 through 26, and he begins here with three uh, rhetorical questions to sort of make his point, and these are rather blunt questions. And so notice, please, if you would, verse 24, he says, Now when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John, saying, So what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? Now remember, John's disciples had just come out to Jesus on behalf of John to question him as to whether or not he was the Christ. John had been preaching Jesus as the Messiah. He pointed to him as that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He baptized him in the River Jordan. He heard that testimony of the Father from heaven that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so John now sitting in prison and, of course, having certain expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to do, which in his mind was to free the prisoner according to his interpretation of Isaiah 61, 
John then begins to doubt as to whether Jesus was the Christ. And so what we saw was that Jesus answered him and said that I am the Messiah, but that you need to adjust your expectations of what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so having now dealt with John personally, he turns his gaze toward this crowd who just witnessed such discussions. And so he begins here with a series of questions and understand that these are some very sarcastic rhetorical questions. Remember, Jesus, in fact, did not necessarily have a lot of love for the crowd in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, the crowd is is a formal category in this gospel, and it represents those who come to Jesus because they want Jesus to do something for them. But they're not really interested in truly following him on his own terms. They come to him for miracles. They come to him for healings. They come to him because he's got a lot of things to offer their sort of temporary desires. But there are very few in this gospel who come to Jesus for the purpose of following him as Jesus desires them to follow. And so this crowd might hail him as something special, at least for now, but this is also the very same crowd that will be yelling, crucify him at the very end of the gospel. And so he is not impressed at all that they identify with him in some vague way or in profession only. Rather, as we're going to see next time, he is only interested in those who produce a true fruit that is consistent with his true teaching. It is easy to talk. It is easy to self-identify as a Christian. It is easy to say that you follow Jesus as Lord. It is easy to call other people to follow Jesus as Lord. But the consistent question of the gospel is, but where is your fruit? How does your life consistently match your profession? As we've been seeing, talk is incredibly cheap. Jesus is not impressed or interested merely with what you say. He is not impressed with what you feel that you believe or perhaps that you were raised in the Christian faith in some way. Rather, his only desire is a true and faithful obedience And because obedience, hear this, is the evidence, obedience is the evidence of a converted soul. Some people think that following some religious rules or prescriptions or traditions will in some way save you, but that is foreign to the scriptures. Obedience to any religious practice is utterly powerless to save you. Rather, it is faith alone and what Christ has accomplished alone that saves. And so obedience then is the evidence that you've been saved. Faithful obedience reveals a truly converted soul. That is a very critical difference. And so Jesus here sets his gaze toward this fruitless crowd And because he knows what is in their hearts, and he knows that this is a mixed crowd, it is filled with both tax collectors and Pharisees, two very different people. And so he fixes his gaze upon this crowd and begins to ask some questions. And you can tell that he is a little bit exercised with these statements. He knows that John's question was a genuine question, but he is also, it seems, agitated here because if if John the Baptist is doubting, then he knows that some people in this crowd are doubting if not outright in unbelief. 
They've heard his teachings. They've seen his miracles. They have watched him now raise the dead. They have been following him around and seeing and hearing all kinds of extraordinary things. And yet in their hardness of hearts, there are some among them that are still so self-righteous that he wants to confront them now with some rhetorical questions. And he understands that they accept John as a prophet, namely the forerunner to the Messiah, but he also understands that they do not yet necessarily accept him as that Messiah. And so now in a very masterful way, and because he knows what they think about both him and John, he is going to use what he knows that they believe as a means to force the issue. That is to force within them a response And because he wants them right here and right now to either accept him or reject him. That is the issue. And as we'll see, he will force them into a very compromised position. And so he asks, first of all, again, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? Now, this is a reference to chapter three. Actually, all these questions are going to be a reference to chapter three. And because Jesus is making reference here to the person of John the Baptist himself, this is in reference to chapter three, where John is in the wilderness or in the desert, and he is preaching that prophetic message of repentance. And so remember, John shows up on the scene and he is nowhere near the establishment. He is nowhere near the temple or the center of the religious institution of Judaism. And so he is in the middle of the desert here and he is preaching that hard message of repentance. And because all of Israel at this point is apostate, that is to say that they have fallen from faithfulness. They have fallen from what God desired them to be. And so as a result, there has not been a message from God or there has not been a messenger sent from God for roughly 400 years at this point. Whole generations have come, whole generations have gone. Israel has been spiraling more and more into disobedience and dead, heartless religion. And then out of nowhere, this very strange man starts to preach a very confrontive message. And he preaches that this nation must turn back to biblical faithfulness. And remember, John is part of this religious sect called the Essenes, who were basically this group of ascetics or a group of monks that were out in the wilderness. And they wanted to separate themselves from all that Israel had become. And so John here is not interested in growing a movement. He is not interested in appeasing the culture. He is not concerned at all with popularity. Rather, he has a message from God. And so his only concern is to faithfully herald that message. And so the imagery here of a reed in the desert that's being shaken by the wind, that is in reference to a prophet or For that matter, you could also understand it's a reference to a self-appointed prophet who has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. It's the idea that once they start preaching, they begin to waver with regard to their message. Perhaps they're a person who thinks that they're a prophet, but once their message is met with rejection or met with hostility, they begin to waver. They begin to change their message to suit the desires and the whims of their hearers. 
And so Jesus here, knowing that John was the most unflinching and uncompromised and, of course, unbending preacher, he questions the people as to what they went out to see. That is to say, what drew them to him? What made John such a compelling person? Well, Jesus knew why they went out to see him, and he knew that they knew why they went out to see him, and that is because John was so utterly unwavering in his message. In fact, this was a day filled with mixed messages and changing messages and empty religious talkers. In fact, the religious Judaism of the day was in a perpetual state of bending and morphing to fit all of the political desires and aspirations of its corrupt leadership. And so John here, who could have cared less about the corrupt system of Judaism, didn't preach a message for the sake of political power. Rather, he preached as one commissioned under divine authority. And so he preached truth. He preached a message that called people to change their mind and to change their ways and to turn back to faithfulness. And so in a day of constant compromise, it was uncompromised truth that became attractive. In fact, I think we're starting to see some of that in our day a little bit. I think the day of the therapeutic church and self-help church and emotional church and superficial church is starting to wane a little bit. At least it appears it's beginning to wane. I think the, the state of our culture and the state of our world right now is creating within people a certain desire for truth, a desire for answers. There's a growing weariness toward empty, rote religion and empty religious talkers. I think we're no longer in a day in which people merely want to be entertained, but it appears, at least in my experience, that people are now wanting something of substance. I think those who are true Christians and truly possess the Spirit of God are starting to grow weary of what Jesus here is going to call soft preachers. I think many of you understand this. Many of you are, in fact, here this morning because you have grown weary of compromised doctrine. You've told me that. You're weary of what we call cotton candy preaching. Feels good in the moment, but does not sustain you. And so you want the purity of the word. You want to submit yourself to the fullness of what God has said. And so you put yourself into a place where you can hear with relative consistency the purity of the word. You're not interested in mere opinions. You're not interested in the newest fad and technique. You're not interested in things like your Enneagram. At least I hope you're not interested in your Enneagram. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. You're in a good place. We're going to do a podcast on that one, by the way. Evangelicals love these kinds of things. But after 400 years of silence, the people here are hungry to hear something definitive. And we know from Mark chapter 1 and verse 5 that John is amassing as a result some incredible popularity. In fact, he had all the people coming to him from both Judea and Jerusalem. And so John wasn't going to the temple. He wasn't going to the various synagogues. Rather, if you wanted to hear John preach, you had to go to him. He was not a man of pragmatics. He was not driven by technique or how he could best position himself for strategic influence. 
Now, there's a man commissioned under divine authority. He just starts preaching the word and he pulls zero punches. He was bold, he was aggressive, he was confrontive. He used language that was utterly offensive. And so he does just about everything opposite of what we're supposed to train church planters to do. But as a result, his popularity and influence explodes. He was a man who preached with conviction. He did not waver. He did not compromise. And why? Well, because he was a man that was compelled by substance over style. Substance over results. It was his message that mattered. It was the content of his preaching that gripped the people. It was the call of his preaching that convicted them. And the people were ready. They, again, were in a day in which compromised superficiality and dead, heartless, religious repetition was no longer effective. It was no longer gripping to them. And so they were ready to hear from God himself. They wanted God's word alone. And so Jesus poses this question, so what did you go out to see? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? No, you went out to see an unshakable man deliver the oracles of God. And so you were compelled by him. This is his point. You were affected by his message, and so you believed his words. And so here, first of all, we see that John's character was compelling because he was uncompromised and unflinching in his message. This is what drew the crowds. He had integrity. And so they believed him. But then number two, notice, he asks a second question, and he's going to be building his case now because he's driving toward a particular point. He asks, verse 25, notice, so what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? You can hear the sarcasm. For those who are splendidly clothed and lived in luxury are found in royal places. Now, this one's interesting, but essentially it's the idea that John's life matched his message. And so what made him so compelling was that he was a man who lacked hypocrisy. He was not like the Pharisees and religious leaders who tied burdens too heavy to carry. He was not in a high political position, completely detached from the commoner. Rather, he actually lived that which he preached. He was among the people. They had access to him. He could be seen. He did not hold a position of power through which he could manipulate the people for political or religious purposes. And so the idea here of soft clothing, as Jesus puts it, is a little bit strange to us, but it's The Greek word molokos, and I'll try and not go off on too much of a tangent here, but Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, where he says there, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's the term, molokos nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will enter the kingdom of God. So this is a little bit challenging in our day because we're starting to play around with genders and pronouns. And of course, with that, the kinds of characteristics and qualities that should accompany what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman as created by God, those are 
objective realities as far as God is concerned. And so there is something fundamentally wrong when a man acts like a woman or a woman begins to take on the characteristics of a man. That is, biblically speaking, rebellion against God's design. Now, again, we like to play with this and become clever when talking about heteronormative issues. But again, biblically speaking, there are objective qualities and characteristics that define a man's nature, and there are objective qualities and characteristics that define a woman's nature. That, again, is just a fundamental reality to God's design. And so one of the things that defines maleness or what it means to be a man is a certain level of aggression. And I don't mean that in an evolutionary sense. That is to say that a masculine feature is to display a certain level of proactiveness or assertiveness. That is not actually a feminine quality, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, but rather that is a masculine one. And despite what the culture wants to tell you, and the culture will tell you in an effort now to deconstruct and get rid of masculinity because it's part of the, quote, patriarchal structure, but they will tell you that masculine virtues are no longer virtuous. They, they are culturally conditioned, they're sociologically derived, so on and so forth. But biblically speaking, understand that assertiveness and proactiveness and things like this are actually very masculine qualities. And so when brought under control or harnessed are actually very good for both the flourishing of family and society. Now, again, those who want to destroy the nuclear family will, of course, disagree with that, but those are masculine attributes. In fact, without trying to be too graphic here, this term of molocaust or effeminate is the term that is used to speak of the passive role in a sexual relationship, both in terms of biology and character. In fact, that is exactly how Paul is using it in that Corinthians passage. And so when Jesus here is rhetorically declaring that John was not Molochos, that is that he was not dressed effeminately, the unambiguous point again is that John was a very assertive person, typified even in how he dressed. And so John was pretty rough around the edges. We know this from Mark chapter one, basically threw a coat of camel's hair over him and not the refined kind like you and I can buy. This was rough, this was raw. He wore a leather belt, again, not the leather belt that you have, and his diet was locust and wild honey. In other words, everything about him was bare minimum, and because he was a man who understood that he was on a mission. He was here for a purpose. He was not in any way trying to make this world his home. Rather, he was a man charged with responsibility. He was on an immovable or unshakable task. And so the point of Jesus here in using such language to contrast the lifestyle of John with the lifestyle here of the political royalty is to draw a distinction between John and the current religious leadership. Again, remember, these people were looking for a political messiah. They were looking one who would perhaps come from the palace, one who had influence, one who rubbed shoulders with the elites and those in high places who are utterly disconnected from the commoner. These are kind of like those who wear those sort of frilly garbs and wigs to establish a sense of self-importance and separate themselves from the commoner. You see this with all the pomp in England's royalty, for example. 
But what made John so compelling and so believable was that he was shattering social norms. He was out in the wilderness. He was aggressive. He's not at all politically correct. He had zero place of privilege in society. And so despite everything that you and I would think should be present, if a man's going to gain any kind of influence and popularity, John just wasn't. And I think in part because there was nothing superficial about him. And people had grown weary of superficial false religion. And so the point of these first two questions of Jesus is to remind the people exactly who John was. He was shattering social norms. He was creating a tremendous amount of attention for himself. And it wasn't that people were just coming out to see the show. It's not that they were just vaguely interested or intrigued with this man, but rather they were actually believing him. Remember, these people were baptized by him. In fact, remember, baptism was a mark of identity. And so if you were baptized by John, you were associating yourself and therefore identifying yourself with his message. You were saying that you agree with what he was saying. That's what baptism is. And so there was so much energy. There was so much excitement. There was so much expectation surrounding the message and the ministry of John. In fact, remember, they thought that he might have actually been the Messiah himself. And so what you have to understand, and we're going to see this next time, but there's been quite a bit of time that has now passed at this point. And so these people are actually starting to forget John a little bit because he's been locked up in prison for about a year at this point. Now, they still acknowledge him. They still understand him to be a prophet in some capacity. They even understand him to be that great forerunner. And so Jesus here wants them to remember that they accepted John. And he will capitalize on that. And so in verse 26, he asks this final question. Notice, he says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. Now, Jesus knows, and this crowd knows that John might be strange, but there is something very unique about him. He is a prophet. He spoke as no one had spoken in nearly 400 years. He was bucking against the established apostate institution of Judaism. He's preaching with boldness and conviction. His life actually seemed to match his message. And so people came to recognize what he was saying, and they began to therefore repent. They actually heard his message and believed him. And so in that sense, Jesus says that you understand then that he is a prophet. You understand this. In fact, if he wasn't a prophet and he wasn't a divine mouthpiece of God, then you would not have been baptized by him. You would have just ignored him as that crazy essene. And so it's a rhetorical question again, because Jesus understands that these people understand John. They know exactly who he is. They recognize him as a prophet. They accept him as a prophet. They followed him as a prophet. And so in light of that, Jesus then moves now from John's compelling character to his unique calling, verses 27 and 28. And again, Jesus here is building his case. And because he is moving this all in a certain direction to make something very significant known about himself. And so his goal here is to induce in them a certain response. But in order to do that, he first needs to sort of move them into a corner. 
And so he begins with the character of John because that was undeniable to these people. They witnessed it, they experienced it, they believed it. And so now having gotten them to acknowledge in their minds that John was a true prophet of God and showing how they even admitted that, and because again, they were baptized by him, he now builds his case to identify John as a very specific prophet. And so in verse 27, notice he identifies John Specifically, he says that this is the one about whom it is written. And so he quotes now from Malachi chapter three in the Old Testament. And he says, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way before you. Now, Malachi chapter three is obviously from the Old Testament. And so it would have been a very well-known Jewish text. And so everybody knew that this was speaking and prophesying of the forerunner. And so when Jesus says in verse 26 that John is a prophet and indeed more than a prophet, what makes him more than a prophet was that he was the only prophet that was ever prophesied about. And so there were quite a few prophets that arose in the days of Israel, but none of them were ever prophesied to come. And so not only was John a prophet, but he was also a prophesied prophet which of course is what makes him more than a prophet. He was the very fulfillment of prophecy. And so what Jesus does is that knowing that these people accept John as a prophet, Jesus then identifies him as the prophet. He is Malachi's prophet. He is the forerunner. And he has to be the forerunner because Malachi was the last word of God in the Old Testament, and there's been no prophet now for 400 years. And so whoever shows up as the next prophet, therefore, has to be, in their minds, the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. And so his point is that since you recognize John the Baptist as a prophet, he must therefore be the prophet of Malachi 3. He must be the forerunner. And so what Jesus is doing, without them even knowing that, is moving these people into a corner. He is very skilled at this kind of thing. And so why? Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he so concerned with making this point about John? Well, because if he can get the people to acknowledge that John is a prophet, which he has, then he can get them to acknowledge that he is the prophet. And if he can get them to acknowledge that he is the prophet and therefore forerunner of Malachi chapter three, then they have no choice at that point but to accept John's divine message. And what is his message? Well, John chapter one and verse 29, and when he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is the message of John? Well, the message is that Jesus is the Christ. And so what does he do? What is he doing here? Well, he is backing these people into an inescapable position because if they accept John as a prophet and therefore the prophet, then they must accept his message. But if they reject Jesus and reject him as the Messiah, then their only choice is to necessarily reject John as well. They must reject him as a prophet, which at this point, no one was willing to do. And so as is his habit, Jesus creates a conundrum for these people. And so in verse 28, he then makes 
the central statement of the passage. Notice he says, so I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, in light of the case that Jesus just made and the fact that it was a case built off of their own conclusions about who the person of John was, which is exactly why he did it in the form of those rhetorical questions, no one now is going to argue with Jesus' statement, at least on the surface. They would agree that John is the greatest man born of a woman. He was a prophet. He was the prophet. He was confident. He was unwavering. He was unvacillating in his convictions. He led a life of self-denial. This was a man who believed what he preached. He was the very mouthpiece of God. And so no one would question his greatness. The people understood this. But what you have to understand, and the point of Jesus here is not to say that John's greatness is somehow derivative of his character or conviction or his self-denial, but rather what made John so great was the purpose for which he came. It was his calling that made him great. In other words, his greatness, understand, was not something intrinsic to him. What made him so great was something that he derived from something outside of him, namely his calling to point to Jesus as the Christ. And that is such a tremendous statement by Jesus and because it has such amazing implications for you and me. In fact, notice, after making such a big deal of John, he states in the second half of verse 28, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater than he. Now, that is a very full statement, but remember, John lived in what was called the time of promise. It was not yet technically the time of the kingdom. We saw this last time that he was still wondering if Jesus was somehow the fulfillment of Old Testament promise, But you and I live in a time of fulfillment. We live in the time of the kingdom in some capacity. And because we are not looking for the Messiah, rather we understand the Messiah has come. He has come in the form of the person of Jesus. And so what makes our perspective such a privileged perspective is that we have the full story. We have the full ministry of Jesus, something that John did not have. We've got all of his teachings, we've got his miracles, we've got all of his healings, we've got his death, burial, and resurrection, we have his ascension, we even have his intercession as that great high priest, and we even have how it's all going to end in the book of Revelation. And so we sit now in a very privileged position, which is to say that you and I sit in what's called the kingdom. And so what makes the position of the kingdom greater than that of John is that while John could point to Jesus as the Christ in some vague way, you and I can point to him in a very explicit way, in a very full way. Remember, John wavered in prison because he still had questions. But you and I have answers. We have answers contained in the scriptures. But regardless of where you might sit in terms of promise and fulfillment, and and this is the point, what we have to understand is that greatness is always something derived from outside of you. 
You are not great because of something intrinsic to you. In fact, any gifts that you have, skills that you have, genetics that you have, first of all, all of that was a gift to you. But second of all, all of it's going to go away, right? And so if you want to be great, it will not and cannot come, hear this, it cannot come from within you. That is not the source of greatness. Now, the greatness, biblically speaking, is always derived from outside of you. John was great, again, because of his calling to point to the Messiah. It was his calling that made him great. And that was a divine sovereign appointment. John did nothing to deserve it. He did nothing to earn it. Rather, that was something granted to him while still in the womb. Chapter 1, verse 44. By the way, that is what is fundamentally wrong with so much therapeutic and self-help preaching. The flaw is with the very premise of that approach. Assumption of that approach is that there's something within you, that you possess something, that you have to dig deep to find something. If it's something good, you have to dig deep to harness it. If it's something bad, you have to dig deep to get rid of it. But whatever it is, it is a faulty assumption because it starts and ends based on something within you. But Jesus shows up and declares that greatness is something derived. Greatness is bound up in finding your identity in something outside of you. Which I think should actually be a tremendously freeing truth for us. And because regardless of your skills, your gifts, your talents, your status, your genetics, his point is that greatness has got nothing to do with those things but comes despite those things. And so what made John so great was an external calling. He was to point to the coming Christ. That was his task. But you and I now sit in a very privileged position because we can point back to this Christ. We can point back to his finished work. We can point back to the fact that we know exactly why he's come and exactly what he accomplished. Again, this is something John did not have. He was still in the dark on some of this. He was far greater than any person or prophet before him because he was pointing to the very substance of what the Old Testament was hoping for. But while you and I also point to that same substance, which is Jesus Christ himself, we have a very full picture. And I don't have the time to develop all this for you, but there are some very technical things going on with this idea of the kingdom in this passage. And because notice, Jesus says that he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, speaking of John. And so think about this, but that is a statement that implies that in some capacity that John is not in the kingdom, right? And because to be greater than John, you evidently have to be in the kingdom. But if you're in the kingdom, then by definition, you are not where John is which means then that in some capacity, John is not in the kingdom. And this gets into a whole discussion then, therefore, on the nature of the kingdom and how it all works out and partial fulfillment and full fulfillment and different things like this. But just understand that this is not a statement here talking about heaven. This is not speaking of that eternal kingdom in its fullness. And because no doubt John will most certainly be there. 
And so this is not talking about the kingdom fully inaugurated. Rather, these kinds of statements here, and there are plenty like this throughout the scriptures, show how the kingdom of God is actually what theologians refer to as a now but not yet reality. That is to say that there are aspects in which the kingdom has come, but there are also aspects in which the kingdom has not yet been fulfilled. And so there is a sense in which you live in the kingdom right now if you're a Christian, but there's also a sense in which you don't experience the fullness of that kingdom. And so what Jesus means here by this statement is that part and parcel of what it means to be in the kingdom is that you are a person who preaches, and hear this, you are a person who preaches the full revelation of Jesus as the Christ. You are a person not merely pointing to a coming Messiah, but you are one who bears witness to everything he accomplished. That is his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And his final return to judge both the living and the dead. And so you are a citizen of a kingdom that has started to come in, but it has not fully arrived. But the point of the statement of Jesus here is that just as John's greatness was derived from his calling, so also your greatness is derived from your calling. And since your greatness is greater than John's, according to Jesus, then the implication of that is that your calling is therefore also greater than John's calling. John was greater than any who had come before him because he testified of the coming Messiah, but yours is even greater because you testify of the crucified and resurrected Messiah. Something which John knew absolutely nothing about. And so Jesus says that if you are the least in this kingdom, then by virtue of your calling, then you are greater than even John. One who is prophesied about. Which is just an amazing truth if you let your mind dwell on such things and because you too have been called and elected for a purpose. And it is a very significant calling And so just to finish it out then, in verses 29 through 30, we then see the cause of John. This is the cause of John. Kind of fumbly, but I needed a C word. Another way you could say it is that this was the ministry that John affected. This is what he caused or created by his calling. And so notice his calling reveals or creates two types of people. You've got acceptors of his message and you have rejectors of his message. That is to say, you have those who will be great and you have those who will not. And so notice verse 29, he says, and when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledge God's justice. Having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees, contrast, And the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Now, Luke is very intentional here to identify the tax collectors. And because as we've been seeing in the gospel, they are the worst of the worst. Tax collectors are essentially the scum and the dregs of Jewish society. They were utterly irredeemable in the eyes of the Jew. And so you could not be more wicked than a tax collector. 
And so Luke is very careful to point out the kind of people that belong to this kingdom. This is a kingdom for sinners. This is a kingdom for those who have no hope. And because this is what Jesus came to accomplish, he came to seek and to save the lost. He has not come for the righteous or self-righteous. Rather, he has come for the sinner. And so Jesus here, having backed these people into a corner to see how their perspective of John should lead them to a rightful, rightful perspective of who Jesus is, Luke says that when they heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. That is to say that they understood God's righteous indictment of them as sinners through the message of John. They were baptized by John, which means that they agreed with his message. John came preaching repentance. He came preaching the sinfulness of sin. He called them to turn back. He called them to turn to the righteous ways of their God. And so since they were baptized with the baptism of John, they were essentially confessing that God's perspective of them through the mouth of John was both true and righteous. They came to understand that they were sinners who needed pardoning. And so they understood God's righteousness. They understood his holy hatred for sin. And so they sought to turn from their wicked ways and believe the message of John, which of course now means that they must receive Jesus as the Christ. That is the path of salvation. That is the necessary path to true righteousness. But in contrast to these Tax collectors and sinners, notice Luke is very careful to show in verse 30 that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for them, which is to say that since they rejected John, they therefore rejected Jesus as Israel's Messiah. And why? Well, because instead of acknowledging God's righteousness, as these sinners did in verse 29, these lawyers and Pharisees were, and hear this, self-righteous. They thought that they somehow knew better. These were the theologians. These were the lawyers of Mosaic law. These are the high and lofty leaders of the nation. And so in their insidious pride, they reject God's purpose for them, namely his desire to make them righteous through Jesus as the Christ. And so in their self-righteous attitude, they reject a true righteousness. And so, beloved, let me tell you that hell will be filled with only one kind of person. It will be filled with self-righteous people. I've been telling you that there are two kinds of self-righteous people. There are the religious self-righteous, and then there are the moral self-righteous. The religious self-righteous think that they can somehow earn God's favor through some merit of their own, through some religious practice or religious prescriptions. They do not understand that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in what Christ has done alone. In fact, this is why every religion except true Christianity is a system of self-righteous effort. It is a system where man tries to earn God's favor 
or keep God happy with them. They want to tip the scale in their favor by somehow outweighing their good deeds with their bad deeds. But true Christianity and one who truly understands the true gospel understands that salvation is a pure work of sovereign grace alone. Which is some very good news. There is no religious tradition through which you can earn salvation. That is foreign to the scriptures. And at the same time, which is what makes it such good news, there is nothing that you can do, therefore, to outsin that grace. Rather, all you can do to keep in theme with Luke is become like the leper, become like the paralytic, the tax collector, the centurion, all these people that we have seen so far, and simply come and bow down at the feet of Jesus. All you can do is understand that while you are an utterly unworthy person of salvation, Christ is still tremendously rich to save the sinner. So you've got the self-righteous religious people, but then you've got, second of all, the moral self-righteous. These are typically atheists and most agnostics. These are those who have established their own standard of righteousness, their own standard of justice. These are those who have determined truth for themselves. These are those who have established their own sense of morality and their own standards by which to live. They don't understand sin. They don't understand their own sin. They refuse to acknowledge a holy and just God who has the absolute and moral authority to judge all of creation in perfect righteousness because it's his creation. And so to their eternal peril, they ignore him. They mock him. They reject him. They scoff him. And they yawn at him. And because they are their own standard of truth, they are their own righteousness. And so these are the morally self-righteous. And together, these two types of self-righteous people are what will make up hell. And because, make no mistake, they have rejected God's purpose for them. God's purpose in sending forth his son was to rescue the sinner, was to save the sinner from his and her own self-righteous condemnation. But if you reject Jesus Christ and therefore reject his salvation, then you will be rejecting the only reality that saves a person from the folly of their own self-righteous destruction. But for the one who understands the person of Jesus and understands what he has done and understands why he has come, and Jesus says that this person, though you hear this, may be least in the kingdom, will still be exceedingly great. You will be exalted in that final day. And so our time is up, but let me just give you a final word here to take away in light of this passage. 
The burden of this passage, beloved, is that one of the greatest things that you could ever do is become a person who testifies to the full revelation of Jesus as the Christ. That is the greatest thing that you could ever do. This is what Jesus himself says. There are so many things that we strive to find identity in. There are so many things that we want to be known for. But the greatest thing that you will ever be known for, eternally speaking, is your devotion to make Jesus known as the Savior. And because that is what kingdom living is. In fact, the ones who will receive the greatest ranks in the eternal kingdom are the ones who believe this and then live this. In fact, this is a very simple passage when you strip it all down. Question presented to you this morning if you're a Christian is do you want to be known for greatness now? As you sacrifice eternal ranks to pursue some earthly fleeting status? Or do you want to be great in heaven, which may require you to sacrifice much now, as John did? but for the purpose of making Jesus Christ known? That is the question. Are you willing to be strange and countercultural, perhaps, as John was? Are you willing to be bold and unvacillating in your message? Are you willing to live, perhaps, a simple life, if need be, for the sake of preaching Jesus? But more fundamental to that, and because it is the true burden of Jesus' words, the greater question that this text presents is, do you even believe that Jesus is the Christ? And do you believe in such a way that it's actually evidenced with a true and consistent fruit in your life? Which means specifically in the context here that it's a life set on making Jesus known. Because you can't be great unless you're actively making him known. And you can't make him known unless you believe in him. And so until you come to some convictions over who he is and what he's done, you can't preach and live for him. And if you can't live for him and speak for him, then you can't earn ranks of glory and greatness within the kingdom. And so the question becomes, so what do you believe about these things? Where are you this morning with regard to the person of Jesus? All he requires is that you understand yourself to be what you truly are, namely a desperate sinner, which we all are. And so what you must do then is simply come to him. All you must do is simply trust by faith in his finished work upon the cross where he bore away the full penalty of your sin once and for all. So what do you believe? Do you desire true greatness? Or do you desire the fleeting pleasures of the fading life, a life filled as you know well with empty promises and disappointment? A life where once you achieve greatness, you are not met with glory and exaltation, but typically jealousy and bitterness. That is the question, and that is what Jesus confronts you with this morning. Let's pray.
And so, Father, I do ask that this would cause us to think. I pray for all in this room that we all might be able to say that we know and believe and love the gospel of your son. I hope my prayer for this word is that it might cause us to better understand your love for the sinner. May we understand in a fuller way your compassion and grace toward us. For you know that there was nothing that we can do, and so you did it for us in the sending forth of your son. I pray for all here this morning that they might see just a little bit more the glorious truth of what it means that you have stooped. That you send forth your son to take on flesh, to take on the weakness of what it means to be a man. But so that you might enter this world and then rescue it from the clutches of its own depravity. So may we come, may we cast ourselves at your feet, may we find comfort in knowing that this is all done by grace, that there's nothing that you require of us other than to fuel our need for you and then trust in your provision. And so I do ask that you would seal that truth within us, that we might have hope, and that we might discover a true rest by faith in you alone. I do ask these things for your glory. Amen.